1 Samuel chapter 14. Now we come into 1 Samuel chapter 14 in a bit of a, a backward situation, if you will, because 1 Samuel 14 is kind of the continuing story of the bravery and the faith of Jonathan and the continuing story of the fear of his father, the king, Saul. If you recall back in chapter 13, the beginning of 13 starts with Saul taking reign over Israel. And as he does so, uh, he forms Israel's first official army. Uh, up until this point, they had kind of been just a, a little militia of farmers. But now, seeking to build this army uh, that Samuel predicted that he would do, uh, he gathers about 3,000 men for their first kind of professional army. 2,000 go with him, uh, and 1,000 go with his son, Jonathan. And as these two uh, captains of this army, Saul and Jonathan, are kind of separated with their troops. It is Jonathan who sees an opportunity. And he goes out and he defeats a garrison of the Philistines. He finds this little group of people at this city called Geba, and he uh, attacks and has victory over this battle, or over this people in this battle. Now, the byproduct of this, of course, is that the Philistines hear what has happened, they understand that uh, little Israel, which has not been too much of a thorn in their side, uh, they have been easily able to manipulate them and to uh, strong arm them into what they desire, now has kind of begun to push back a bit. And the result is that the Philistines bring together a massive army. They bring together 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. And so, all of a sudden, uh, they are up against it. They are facing a, a mass force, a huge army. And the result of the people of Israel seeing this is that they, they all of a sudden become fearful. They take on the attitude of their king. They take on the attitude of fear, which is the defining characteristic of those who are seeking to find their identity in something other than Jesus. It's often when we are fearful is that we are fearful because we are seeking to protect something that we think is in danger, that we think is going to be attacked or to be easily overthrown or defeated. This is when we act out of fear. When we feel like we have to uh, put on a show, when there's an opportunity for uh, our lives to be exposed or our decisions to be exposed, our relationships to be exposed. This is when we operate out of fear, when we've built these identities and we're pursuing them and we're doing anything we can to protect them. But when we find our identity in Christ, there is nothing to protect because it is certain, it is solid, it is sure, it is unshakable uncorruptible. There is nothing that could separate us from the love of God, as Romans tells us. Nothing. And so there's nothing to be fearful of, nothing to protect, because we have already been adopted and fully accepted into the family of God. But Saul and his men here, the people of Israel, they begin to be fearful. And as this army is growing of the Philistines, and as the people of God are scattering and they're hiding in holes and caves, we find that Saul has just about run out of patience. He's not really sure uh, about what he needs to do, but he has shown himself to the people and declared himself to be this great military ruler, and so he is kind of usurping the power uh, in, in the positioning of Samuel, the high priest here, who's come to uh, offer these sacrifices. He has not yet arrived, but Saul decides, you know, I'm going to, to take this on. I'm going to do this. And he's caught red-handed doing it. He acts like it's not a big deal. And the byproduct of this is that uh, he is given a swift rebuke from Samuel. Instead of repenting, 
Saul does not repent. He doesn't turn from his sin, but instead he defends it. He shifts the blame to everyone but himself. And as the result, Samuel tells him, you know, I'm, I'm out of here. You're on your own. And the last thing that we find in uh, chapter 13 is that the, the circumstances that surrounded Israel was that they were a people who were mostly conquered. The people who were a part of the army, they didn't have any tools or, or any weapons with which to fight. They were, they, uh, the Philistines removed all the blacksmiths out of the land. And so all they had left was their, uh, their farming tools. And they even had to go to the Philistines to get their tools sharpened, to be, have them prepared. And they were, uh, you know, they were essentially also further impoverished through extortion. They were charging them these crazy amounts in order to uh, keep them in poverty and also to let it be known that they were the only ones that could help them. That the Philistines were the only way that they could be helped. But as we've seen many times before, nothing could be further from the truth. The enemy acting in disobedience is not the thing that helps you. The thing that helps you more than anything else is finding your identity in Christ and throwing the entirety of who you are upon him and letting him work. You see, too often what happens in our lives is that we desire to get out of our current situation or maybe there's something that's making us a little bit upset or a little bit difficult and we think, okay, well, you know, I'm going to work through some of these things and I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to kind of come with my little pieces of the puzzle and, and, and say, okay, Lord, here's kind of what I've figured out thus far. Maybe you can kind of help make sense of these things. When all along, what the Lord really wants is he wants us to come and just be like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, please fix this. And then you, he just says, like, okay, like, go get in the house. I'll handle it. <laughs> right? Like, that's, that's, that's what he's wanting. But all along, we're like, well, you know, I've come up with these ideas. Look at my uh, spreadsheet here. Here's how this could work. Here's my pie chart. See if we attack from this angle or if I deal with this person or if we have this conversation and we put out, we simultaneously roll out this marketing campaign to go with my little plan, then all of a sudden, you know, it's going to work. And we're expecting God to be like, oh, that's a great idea. But he doesn't need our great ideas because he has sovereignty over our lives. He's working in all of the situations that we do not understand, that we don't have full knowledge of, the things that are confusing, the things that do feel backward. Even in the midst of Israel's defeat again and again and again, he is working for their good, to bring them, as the covenant says, back into a covenant relationship with him. This is discipline so that they might know him more. And then also, so that as the result of their obedience and discipline and coming back into the covenant, that they would then receive blessing. This is all for their good. It's to exercise God's full authority, his full power over every situation and every circumstance. And so even in these things that seem like they are difficult, that they are hard, They're not really a big deal. They're only a big deal because we think they feel impossible. But friends, I will tell you this from experience. There is nothing more freeing. There's nothing more freeing than having your identity in, in Christ and then just kind of like throwing caution to the wind and being like, all right, God, like do some stuff because like I'm not really sure what's happening. But you said if I come to you, you're going to handle it. It's like this weird juxtaposition of like, you, you really have to get over your own self of like, am I being irresponsible right now? But it's one of the most responsible things that you could do to put all of your trust, all of your hope, all of your expectations upon the only sure thing, the faithfulness of Christ. It's the best thing you could ever do. We find here a demonstration of this attitude in our text today. We read in chapter 14, verse 1, as they're coming out of this situation, as they're coming out of this 
as they're in the middle of this season of hardship, as they've kind of been conquered to a certain degree, and as the armies are kind of in this standoff, we find that the story turns to, again, Jonathan. In chapter 14, verse 1, we read this, One day, we don't know how much time has passed, but one day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. You see, what happens here is that Jonathan's there just sitting around with his troops. He's got, he's got his troops that he's in charge of, but now they are kind of all gathered, everyone's scattered, and so it's just basically now Jonathan and his, his armor bearer. And, and these high-ranking officials in the, in the army would have, traditionally you would have somebody who would be with you, who would carry your armor or carry your swords when you need to switch out weapons or you needed to, uh, a bigger shield or a smaller shield. This person was kind of would cruise behind you and, and assist with various things. If you needed, uh, you know, more arrows, he'd be like the one to be like, okay, here you go. He's just kind of re, restocking uh, this warrior. And here, this guy has stuck close with Jonathan. He's been with him. And, you, and to be an armor bearer, you have to have some level of bravery. You have to have some level of, of trust because you're going into the heat of the battle. And here, Jonathan says, hey, I got an idea. Let's go check out this garrison. Now, he's already done this once before. His, his Philistine garrison intrigue Seems like it keeps leading him back to this position of victory. He says to the armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. Let me get this note. But he did not tell his father. <laughs> he did not tell his father. Now, the reason that he probably didn't tell his father, one, he was probably a little bit of a distance away, um, as you'll see in the next verse. But this is also a little bit of a covert operation that's happening here. Saul, as we said, who is not characterized by faith, but is defined by fear, would probably say, well, you know, I don't think this is a good idea. Last time you went out and you attacked the Philistine garrison, you won, but then we got a bigger army that came to attack us after that. He's characterized by this doubt. He's probably going to be like, no, Jonathan, just like leave it alone. Don't do it. And in fact, when we come to verse 2, we see that the positioning of Saul is like, he's just kind of holding court with the remaining army. He's sitting there, verse 2, he was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. And so the contrast we find here is that Saul, he's sitting around with all these people. He's got the remaining army. He's got Ahijah, who's, who's kind of uh, acting as a priest now that Samuel's gone. He's like, okay, here's my guy that's going to kind of watch over this circumstance here, this situation. But then we have like a random like lineage that's kind of drawn out here. I don't really know if there's anything, you know, important there. There's any sort of reason other, to, uh, other than to kind of draw out like here's how this guy got here. Here's, uh, you know, that he's really in the priestly line. But I think it is interesting and I think it's worth noting here that we find that Ahijah is the son of Ahitab. And then we have an additional mention which is not normally included here. Like you don't like normally it's just like the father, the father, the father, the grand like you know, you're just moving through. We got a brother mention here. There's, there's a brother thrown in here. Including Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother. So it's like, why does that guy get the mention? I don't know if there's anything to it, but if you recall back in our previous story, uh, in, in earlier in 1 Samuel, we find that there's a section where 
the people of God essentially are in disobedience, and the result of this is that God's glory has departed, and so they call the name of uh, this spot or this, this child Ichabod. The result of God's glory departing Israel and uh, Eli dying and, you know, his kids dying. I don't know if there's anything to mention there, but it does seem like it characterizes Saul's spiritual state. That he's someone who kind of blows where the wind goes. If it's time to be spiritual, perhaps he may attempt to be spiritual. But he doesn't have interest in the things of God. He's not worried about it. It'll be demonstrated later, as you'll see. But we find here that Saul, he's just chilling. He's got his people. But Jonathan, he recognizes that the situation is dire. It's difficult. It's hard. And so we find in verse 4, within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of one was Bozes and the name of the other, Senna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Mishmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Now, we find that basically there's this, these two points that are happening here, and it looks like perhaps there's like a, a tiny little valley in between, but there is this, this kind of maybe defensive positioning that uh, Jonathan has picked out to say, like, you know, if we're going to go over there, here's how we can go about it. There's these two kind of rocky crags, and we can kind of find our way in here, and so that way if an entire garrison comes to attack us at one time, like, they're not all gonna, we're not gonna have to face like 400 people all at one time. It could be like we could fight a couple at a time. Everyone can't fit through this funnel uh, in, in a very easy way. And so perhaps this is the point of his uh, geographic location, the strategy here. But he says, he identifies his place. In verse six, he says, uh, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. That is to mention that these people are outside the covenant of faith, that they are Philistines, that they are not a part of God's people. He, and he continues, he says, let's go over to the garrison of these circumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. We find that Jonathan has a different perspective than Saul. Saul's there with his people. He's kind of just like buying time. He's just, he's just chilling, not really doing much. But Jonathan sees that there are dire circumstances. He sees that they are in trouble. And so his decision is to go out on his own. We also see uh, earlier in uh, chapter, or excuse me, not in, in verse 3, that the people didn't know that Jonathan had gone out. And so he goes out on this covert mission. Now, it's worth noting that the people don't know because it could be easily said that maybe Jonathan went for his own glory. He said, you guys stay here. I'm going to go out on my own, and I'm going like, to crush these fools we're going to go out and win this victory. And, you know, I rescued you last time. Like, I'm going to go handle this. But he goes out without any support. He goes out quietly, and no one knows that he's gone. And he goes out with a different perspective. He says, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, these Philistines, these oppressors. And what he's, he's saying here is this. I have something that I want to do. I have something that I want to try out. I want to figure this out because what he's doing here is he's expressing his trust in God. His faith in God leads to action. His trust in God, his faith in God leads to action. And this comes out, this comes out of Jonathan for a couple reasons. First, it comes out because he knows God. He knows God. He acts out of faith. He produces action in his life because he truly knows God. And so the thing that causes him to act is not that there are a lot of Philistines, but that he knows God. His action and his knowledge of God are connected. Right? Here's what I mean. He says... 
here's what I want to do. Let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Now, why would he say that? Well, he says it because he wants to take action because he knows God. Here's, here's, here's how we know. He lays out his motive. He lays out his knowledge. He lays out his perspective for us in the text. He says right after that, it may be that the Lord will work for us. He's like, again, I'm not sure how this is going to go out, but it might be that the Lord might work for us. And again, it's contingent upon his knowledge of God. He's like, here's what I know about God. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Like that's his understanding and his knowledge about who God is. Nothing can stop him from saving. And he says, it doesn't really matter if you have many or few. Nothing can stop him. So let's go check this out. His action is not built around the fact that they're in dire circumstances. There's, he understands the circumstances, of course. He understands the hardship and difficulty that they're facing. He understands the suffering. But he is not responding to the fact that there are a lot of people, and he's like, oh, we better do something because we're going to react to them. If they do something, we got to make a counter move. He says, I know who God is. Let's go try something out. Let's, let's see if he's going to work here. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. He has a clear understanding, a clear perspective of who God is. Nothing can keep God from saving. And this clear understanding, this clear perspective, it produces, that clear understanding produces great, exceedingly great expectations. He's like, if, he's like, follow the logic, if nothing can stop God from saving, then he can save with many or he can save with few. He's like, he might use our entire army and we might win, or he just might use like both of us to win. It's not outside of the realm of possibility in his mind that God would do something that makes no sense. No sense to any human perspective. Because God is not limited by our, our realm. He is going to win. Nothing's going to stop him. He is sovereign over all. And so, if nothing can prevent him from saving, the method by which he saves, many or few, Jonathan's like, eh, it doesn't really matter. Like, let's just figure it out. Maybe, like, we can be part of something cool. And so he's like, well, maybe he just wants to work in, like, a, like an abnormal way. Like, maybe we don't have, like, the logical mass army that comes and attacks. Maybe it's just, like, a, like a weird way. It's, like, just a couple guys out there winning. Let's figure it out. But his understanding is that the Lord may, in fact, work for us. I love this. Now, this is something that I want you all to understand. First, in order to live the life of a Christian, you have to know God. You have to know him. You have to be familiar with him. You have to understand who he is, his character, how he relates to you, how he relates to you through his word. Not how he relates to you, how you want him to relate to you, how he relates to you through his word. Okay? You have to understand this, and then from that knowledge about who God is, then you can start uh, using that as a springboard in life to bank on his faithfulness, to trust in his work, to act in such a way that one might say would be reckless. To say, well, if he's in charge, if I belong to him, if my identity's in him, then like let's see what happens. Can kind of get like a little bit, a little bit crazy, a little bit exciting when you have this perspective. Because as, as you move through life, you start, you stop measuring out, like, is this smart? Does this work like really well? You just find out what exciting thing is the Lord doing? Where is he working? And then you figure out how to join him in that thing he's working in. 
This is what Jonathan says. He goes out there fully acknowledging that, like, maybe this is not the Lord. He says, it may be that the Lord's going to work for us. Nothing can stop him. He could save by many or by few. He says, perhaps, perhaps the Lord might work on our behalf. I love this because this is the attitude of the Christian. This is what we should be operating in. We don't have the knowledge. We don't have the perfect knowledge. We don't have the plan. As soon as you can confess that, then you can say, I think the Lord might be doing this. I could be wrong. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if maybe like perhaps this is what the Lord is doing. Now, of course, along the way, you'll figure, you'll figure out that as you're trying to understand if the Lord is doing something, there are some very obvious ways that you can know that it's not the case. It doesn't line up with his word. The community, uh, you know, hears this idea and they decide, like, this is not, you know, where the Lord is kind of leading. There's a, a good number of ways that you can kind of practically work through these things. But the idea is that you would understand that the possibilities of walking with the Lord are endless. And where he's going could be crazy. Could just be a wild ride and something exciting to join him in. And so you, you step out in faith with a good sense of uncertainty, not sure where things will go or how things will shake out or what will happen along the way. But you know that you're banking on his faithfulness. You're banking on his work. Throughout the scriptures, we find again and again and again, this is what God does with people who follow him, right? You find the OG covenant keeper, Abraham, right? Before Abraham is particularly called out as the beginning of a new nation, the Lord tells him, like, when he's Abram in Ur of the Chaldees, he's like, yo, uh, Abram, I want you to get up out of here and go to a land that I'm going to show you. It's like, well, maybe you should show me the land and then I can go to the land. Like, how about some, like, some instructions here, God? And he's like, nah, just get up and go. And so Abram, he gets up and he goes, but guess what? He only goes, like, 20 miles or maybe even less than that. And he goes to the hometown of his dad. Like, how lazy is that? But that's because that's how we operate. Well, it doesn't make sense to go farther than, like, where I don't know people. You know, oh, well, if I'm going to leave everything that I have here, and I was, like, a really rich person in this town, if I'm going to get up and get out of here, I better go to, like, where I have some resources. The Lord didn't tell him to stop. The Lord didn't tell him to go to the place where his dad's at. But somehow he's like, oh, yeah, that's, like, this, seemed, this must be what the Lord is doing. Yep, I see it. Going to go and be closer to family. And the Lord's like, no. Like, you're going to go where you don't have any family because we're going to make a whole new family. You're going to a new place, a new land. And finally, the Lord has to come and be like, I didn't tell you to stop. Like, let's go. And he's just like, is wandering around. He doesn't get given instructions that are play by play, like every step of the way. Like, here's the entire plan. Okay, go follow it. As you look at the scriptures, this is carried out through all sorts of people. They get little bits of information to follow the Lord. Because what happens is when we're given the whole plan, we hijack God's plan. If you're given the whole plan and you're like, okay, here's what I want to do through you. Here's like the entirety of your life. Then all of a sudden, you know, you and I are going to be the type of people who are like, okay, well, great. Like, I'm going to start like this amazing social media campaign. I'm going to set up like a Patreon account so I can get some support. You know, I'm going to pull together like all these resources. I got to get out and network. And the, Lord, and the Lord's like, we're not, we're not doing it that way. But that's what we would do. We would be hijacking his plan right away. We just get straight on it. But he wants us to be in relationship with him. Because remember, when you walk with the Lord, getting to the end, like, get, like getting to the end is not the goal. Knowing God is the goal. Being with him is the goal. So he's the treasure along the way. And so you get all that you need by pressing into him. By not knowing and coming to him, you're fully satisfied. He's helping you see his faithfulness again and again. But when we want to know the whole plan, 
what we're essentially saying is like, well, I don't really trust you, and I don't really want to come back to you later, so I'm here to just get the whole download so I can be done with you and we don't have to deal with this again. But he's saying, come back, come back, come back. Let's be in relationship. Now, Jonathan here, I want you to see the contrast, is different in his pursuit of faith because he doesn't doubt the word of God. Right? Here's what I mean. It's not that God came to him and said, Jonathan, I want you to do this. And he's like, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, like, you know, I see what you want me to do. But first, I'm going to go up to this rocky crag, and then I'm going to, like, kind of check it out and see if it works. Like, that's not what happens. Jonathan is there, and he's just sitting around with his armor bearer, and he's like, maybe the Lord wants to do, like, a cool thing. Like, I'm not really sure, but, like, maybe we should go check it out. He's not being told by the Lord to do anything specifically. He's just banking on the Lord's faithfulness and the Lord's character. There's no instruction, so he's not acting disobediently here. And so he doesn't ask for the whole plan. He doesn't come with any, any sort of expectation. He's just like, hey, like, here's who God is. Like, let's go figure this out. Like, this might be a thing or it might not be a thing. And his armor bearer is like, cool, like, I'm with you. He sees that the Lord has been faithful to Jonathan, and he has seen that, the, that Jonathan has desired to pursue the Lord in all things. He's like, look, it's my job to have your back, to give you the tools to succeed when it's time to go into the battle, to be like, all right, here's your shield, here's your sword, like, let's do this. He's like, I'm giving you the moral support here to be like, the Lord is faithful, let's go. And these are the type of people that we need in our lives. This is why community is important. Because sometimes you come up with your own idea, and sometimes you need someone to be like, oh, that's a really bad idea. But sometimes the community can be like, yeah, we're going to bank on the character of God. We're going to bank on the faithfulness of God. Like, let's do this. We need to be there to push each other into these things sometimes. And so we read in verse 8, Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come up to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign to us. So Jonathan's plan, of course, in keeping with uh, trusting the Lord, in keeping with uh, putting all of his expectations on the Lord to work, he, he kind of tests this out. And I love this because this is the type of person that, that I am where I'm just like, let's just make it as hard as possible for God to do what he wants to do. And then if he still makes it happen, well, then you definitely know it was him. But if, but if you like do all the, all the things that are like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, why would you do it that way? And, and then he doesn't do it. It's like, okay, well, like naturally it didn't work out. <laughs> like he didn't want to do that. But if he does want you to do it, he's going to like make everything possible and it's going to happen. I'm totally like, I, I love operating in this way because you, because in my mind, it's so much freedom because I'm like, I'm just going to make this impossible for this to happen naturally. I'm going to like make it as difficult as possible. I did this when I tried to, when I got my most recent job, I wasn't sure if the Lord was leading us there. And like, I had an opportunity and many of you guys have heard the story before again and again, but like basically I've like made it as hard as possible to get my job. I, they just kept being like, well, you know, like we really want you to do this and I was like, well, I don't have, like, a resume. They're like, well, do you have, like, a LinkedIn? I'm like, yeah, but it's, like, really old. It was, like, the company that I was going to work for. And, and, and they were like, okay, I'll, like, let us go to it. And they went to it. And they're like, okay, well, like, like, can we, like, let's get on the phone. So I got on the phone with them. They're like, okay, so tell us about, like, your work history. And then, like, they produced, like, a Word document for me and sent it to me. It's like a copy and paste it in my LinkedIn account, so then it looked nice, <laughs> which is great. And then they were like, okay, so like, can you just like apply through the LinkedIn portal? And I was like, okay, yeah, well, I guess I'll do that. Like, I'm, I'm really bad at organizing those sorts of things. So I, I, I did it. I like went to send it through the LinkedIn, sign up. And then like it got there, and it was like, are you, like, before you submit, make sure you attach a cover letter. And then I was like, and then I didn't do it. I just like didn't, didn't do it. And like a week went by. They're like, okay, we didn't see your application come through. I was like, well, I was gonna do it, but it, but it like, it wanted a, like, I wanted a cover letter, and I'm not really sure like what to do there. And they got on the phone again. They wrote me a cover letter, and then like I attached the cover letter, put it in, and like sent it through. And like, no joke, literally within like, like ten seconds of pushing it, they're like, we got your application. I was like, yeah. They're like, when do you want to come in for an interview? I was like, uh. I just tried to make it so hard. And even through the whole process, like, by the time we finally got to, like, the offer, and I was just like, 
oh, no, that's not going to work. Like, I need, uh, you know, I don't, I, I know that you guys really care about like this, but like the most important thing to me, aside from like my, like my family in, in my life is like my church. Like, I can't compromise that. I need to be here. It was like, you guys need to work around this. And they were like, oh, yeah, no problem. Like, I just, <laughs> like, it was crazy. But I just tried to like sabotage as many ways as possible. And obviously, like, that didn't happen. So the Lord was like, okay, I guess, guess we're doing this. And it's been awesome. But that's just one example of, you know, I try to, I try to just wreck things. And then if the Lord wants to keep it around, he'll keep it around. But if not, no problem. It's way fun, I'm telling you. It seems stressful, but it's way fun. It's way fun. When you, when you see his faithfulness and it just, you're just like, oh, okay, I see what's happening. Because you know, if, even if you don't get it, it's just like, well, he's going to do something else. I must not have been the right direction. I'm glad like it got shut down. I'm counting on God to override me. I'd rather have him override me on like, you should do this thing I want you to do than rather me be going in the wrong direction and him be like, oh, like, I don't know why you're doing this thing. Like, I didn't want you to do that. That seems worse to me. Anyways, we're getting off track. Uh, Jonathan here, he comes up with a similar plan. Defies all practical logic for attacking a group of people, right? Like attacking 101, you want a surprise attack, right? You always want a surprise attack. Everybody has seen how cats work, right? They're just like hiding out and at the like random, most random moment, it's like, oh my gosh, there's like an animal jumping out at me or, you know, like tigers, like, you know, on the, like prowling around. They're just like want to, they're ready to get you at like random moments when you don't see them. They jump out of the bushes and here, Jonathan's like, okay, so like, here's what we're going to do. Here's our plan. We're going to cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. It's like, uh... Plan number one, surprise attack, off the table. He's like, so we're just going to do the thing you're not supposed to do, let people know, hey, hey, we're coming. So he comes up and he's like, we're, we're going to get rid of the element of surprise. Then he's like, what we're also going to do is as we come up, if they say to us, wait until we come up to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go to them. So Jonathan says this, if they're in this section... And they say, like, hey, stay there. We're going to come fight you. He's like, we're out of here. Which you would think he would want because they're going to expend all of their energy climbing up these steep, rocky crags to get to them. And by the time they get to them, they're going to be, like, exhausted. And it'll probably be easy for him to fight. So he's like, if they say, like, hey, we're going to come to you. We're going to, we're going to like, tire ourselves out by getting over there so we could fight you. Then, like, we're not going to do it. We're going to avoid the battle entirely if it's going to give us the advantage. <laughs> but, he says, verse 10, if they say, come up to us, then we will go up. He's like, so, but if they want us to expend all the energy, if they want us to get super tired and they're taunting us and they're like, oh yeah, you come over here and we go in and we're going to be super exhausted, that's when we're going to fight. Like, this is the worst plan ever. Right? Show yourself to the enemy. You're only going to fight on the contingency that you're going to be the more tired group. And there's only two of you. Like, this is a horrible plan. But we see that Jonathan's trust, his faith, is not in his ability, but in the Lord's faithfulness. Will the Lord do this? He's taking a chance. Like, perhaps the Lord might work. I'm not sure. And so we read verse 14, or excuse me, 11. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. So they're mocking him. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. It's like, hey, come over here, and we'll show you a thing or two. You guys want to fight? Let's go. Right? So this is kind of, I don't think they ever expected them to come. And Jonathan said to his armor, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Now, I love this because even in the midst of if, of discerning that the Lord is with them, he doesn't say that the Lord has given them into my hand. It's not about him. He says the Lord has been faithful to Israel. He's in the midst of this banking on the, the covenant faithfulness of God. It demonstrates that he knows God. He's not like the Lord has given them into our hand, into my hand, but he has given them into the hand of Israel. It's going to be a benefit to the nation. And so we read, Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet 
and his armor bearer after him. Like, you know that's a steep climb when, when you have to lean forward and climb up on your hands and feet. Right? If you're going up a hill and you, you can, like, be upright, like, it's steep. But it's not like the level where, like, if you have armor on you and you're, like, gravity's pulling you backwards. Like, you have to be leaning forward on hands and feet. Like, that's a steep climb, right? To be as close to, uh, have a low center of gravity and be near to, to the mountain. I mean, I'm not sure what kind of walls, like, how steep this was, but it sounds like it was pretty exhausting, like, like trying to bear crawl up an entire mountain to fight these guys. And so, um, they climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed them after him. So, Jonathan went through with, like, his sword. He was, like, you know, doing like all of his like moves and like maiming them. And then the armor bearer would come by probably like with a spear after and anybody who was like not dead all the way, he was like, pow, pow, like smashing them and doing his thing behind. Um, they were ta tag teaming this as they were moving through. Uh, we find verse 14, and that first strike which, with, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within as it were half a furrow's length in the acre of land. So they give us this kind of like little, it's a, smallish sort of plot, but it's, it's measured by what an ox would plow. That's why there's this weird measurement here. Um, but this, this is what happens here. They go up, they have victory, and they defeat uh, these 20 men. Now we read in verse 15, and there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked and it became a very great panic. Now, I love this repetition here that happens in the Hebrew language and it's a little bit carried over into English with this repetition of the word panic. It's meant to set off in our minds that all of a sudden there's mass confusion, a mass panic that happens, not only because uh, they get a sense that in the corner of their camp there is a group that has fallen and that there are uh, you know, Israeli army who's coming through into here, all of a sudden they're like, oh my gosh, we just got defeated and who knows how many people, they don't know how many people are coming. But they, this attack brings these, this result of panic and confusion. There was panic in the camp and as the panic in the camp happens, then the panic, they, they hear the Philistines panicking in the field and then the people the Philistines begin to panic in the field and then among all the people and the garrison this whole group of people and even the raiders the people who were going out to attack these other places they trembled and then here we go the Lord intervenes on in, in his own way and it says that the earth quaked and it became a very great panic as these survivors flee the camp the Lord sends an earthquake, which creates a greater panic. And what likely was happening here, beyond the fact that they are suffering a defeat, beyond the fact that there is a, uh, that they are suffering in the middle of an earthquake, is that there's probably an understanding that their God that they trusted in, Dagon, was being exposed. Like he's not helping them. He's not being faithful to them. He's not protecting them. And so they're like, oh my gosh, like our God is not here with us. He's not helping us fight. He's not helping us have victory. And so again, the God of Israel is here displaying his dominance over the God of the Philistines. Saying, if you guys want to trust in these other things to save you, I will show you that I am the only one. I'm the only one who is worthy of your trust. I have not left my people, even though they are few, even though you, they have no weapons. I will not leave them. Verse 16, And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. And all of a sudden, the people who were with Saul are like, what in the world's happening over there? They see like all the Philistines running around, and it's just like Saul and his armor bearer like chasing all these people around. This is like a weird scene. <laughs> Two people versus the entire army. And, and then we find here, uh, Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone from us. They're like, what in the world's happening? Let's figure out who's gone. When they counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. He's like, oh man, <laughs> here it goes again. Jonathan's gone. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, 
a tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. So what happens here is that Saul sees what's happening. The group, uh, he sees that Jonathan and his armor bearer are gone and that the Philistines are in this great panic and this battle is happening. I guess you could call it a battle. It's like two people versus like a whole army. And, and, and it takes a while for them to understand that it's Jonathan and his armor bearer are gone. And then when he realizes it, when, when he sees what's happening, then he calls the, the priest and he's like, hey, like, let's bring the ark here, which was with them, and let's begin these ceremonies, which we were supposed to partake in, which we should have done, or which, which we should do. And so, uh, because according to the law, you read in Deuteronomy chapter 20, there was a particular set of instructions that had to be carried out before they went into battle. Uh, there, there was a, a particular thing that had to be said and then offer of opportunity for people who like weren't married yet but were engaged. Like, it's like, you don't get to go to battle. You should go home and like carry out your commitments. If you, like, you built a house and you haven't like finished it yet, like you should go do that. It's like basically like only the people who were settled were ones who were going into war. But we find in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse, uh, verse 1, that the prescription for the people of God going into war is this. When you go to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them, right? Rule number one, don't be afraid when you're outnumbered. Like they already lost <laughs> that one, right? Because the Lord your God who has brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. There it is. Trust in the covenant faithfulness of God. If you trust that the Lord God of Egypt, or the Lord God of Israel who brought you up out of Egypt is with you, then you don't need to be afraid because you were already outnumbered in Egypt. You were already enslaved for you know, hundreds of years. You already had victory. Then we're told, when you, go, when you are about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, hear Israel, today you're going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not panic or be terrified by them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. So this is kind of like the beginning section of what this priest is supposed to say and, and then kind of give a little bit more instruction as Deuteronomy chapter 20 goes on. But as he's in the middle of this, he's brought the ark forth and he's beginning his his ceremony to say to the army of these 600 who are gathered here, we find that as Saul is talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. Like it's just getting crazier and crazier. They're more panicked. And Saul doesn't want to get, he doesn't want to like kind of let things get away. He sees that there's like an opportunity here. And so he tells the priest like, withdraw your hand. Like we're not doing the ceremony anymore. Let's go. We're going to go fight. Again here, he sees that perhaps he's going to miss this opportunity to defeat the enemy. And so what he does then is he subverts the order that God has instructed Israel to act in. Again, he says, not God's way, my way. We're doing it my way. I'm going to have my own way and we're going to do my own thing. And so he tells the priest, like, no more, no more offering. We're going out to battle. Now, what this would tell the people who were aware of this was that Saul is completely unfit to be the king. Another demonstration that he is far, far from the Lord. He doesn't want to obey him. He decides that he's going to take his own way, the logical way, the practical way. There's a big opportunity. I got to take it. Got to take it. It's right here. He's not willing to put in the due diligence that the Lord has told him to do. Come near to me. If you want me, then you're going to seek me. But Saul doesn't care about the Lord. He wants the victory. He wants other people to see him as the military leader. And he's been kind of sitting on his hands. And people are like, man, like you're not really doing anything. And here maybe he has the opportunity to win and people to see him in battle. And so he's like, hey, like, let's go. But if he cared about the Lord, if he wanted to pursue the Lord, then he would know it's precisely in his delaying of the battle that he would have victory in the battle. Because when you go into battle with the Lord, when you follow the instructions, we're told you will have victory. The Lord will go with you. The Lord will go with you. 
But here, Saul is demonstrated to be far from the Lord, spiritually insensitive, only interested in himself. Interested in himself, interested in what other people think about him, interested in proving his worth. Verse 20, then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines, there were some people who deserted and they went to the other side, before that time and gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. So they switched sides. They were like, oh, we're on team Philistine. And then like, they were like, oh, we're about to lose. Okay, we're team Israel. Right? Could not be a greater demonstration of a double, like a double-minded man, somebody who is trying to serve both the Lord and sin. Somebody who's trying to be like, oh yeah, like I'm, I want to walk with the Lord, but then as soon as it gets like a little bit hard, they're like, oh, I'm on the other team. Whatever team is 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 going to be seen to be the victor, whatever team is going to offer this temporary peace, this temporary security, they're quick to switch sides. Verse 22, Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So now we go from like two people to like 600 people to like everybody coming out of the caves and hiding and all those actual holes that the Philistines were mocking Jonathan for. We end in verse 23 with this declaration. So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond beth Now this is the description of what happened. This, is, this victory belongs to the Lord. As Jonathan said in the beginning, the Lord can save by many or by few. What are we to make of Saul going into the battle? What are we to make of those forces ending up with a victory, even though they disobeyed? Well, I would suggest to you that the victory came because Jonathan had already won the victory by obeying the Lord. He didn't need anybody else to come in. Because we're not told that Saul came in and like his men and like they were valiant in battle. What are we told? Saul and all the people who rallied or with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow. Like the Philistines fight the Philistines. The Lord's causing this great confusion and they end up fighting each other. Now, I'm not sure if, like, the Lord literally didn't let Saul have any, like, his army have any, like, kills or any, like, part of the victory. And he was just like, look, you guys can be here, but, like, I'm going to handle this. And they just kind of got in there and started running with him because, like, they were able to survive. I'm not sure what happened there. But it's interesting. And I think it's true to say that the victory would have been assured regardless of whether Saul and his men came into that battle or not. Because the Lord can save by many or with few. And we're told that the Lord saved Israel that day. It was the Lord who did it. This is what happens when we dare as God's people to say, perhaps the Lord will work Perhaps the Lord will work if we go and do this thing, if we move in this area, if we begin something. Perhaps the Lord will work. That flicker of faith is all you need. That flicker, we're just like, maybe the Lord will work. You know, maybe he won't, but maybe he will. This is the best thing about trusting in him and finding your identity in him. If you're trying to serve him and walk with him and you're asking him to work and he doesn't work, well, that's on him, not on you. 
He didn't want to work. Okay. Well, tried something. Not sure if it's going to work. You know, that's such a key thing in stepping out in faith. Learning that practice. When we came here, when we were praying about coming here to, to plant the church so many years ago, everybody wants certainty. They're like, when are you going? When is it going to be up and running? It's like, I don't know. Like, I'm not in charge. It's not my church. Like, we're going to pray for a year. We're going to figure it out. And like, right? And then, and like the entire way, like I was so cagey. Like, like oh yeah, it's like, like, you feel good? Does the Lord called you to this? I'm like, I think so. Like, I don't know. Like, I'm just more like, let's just go and see what happens. Right? And then even after you're here, and we're a year in, people are like, well, I guess it was the Lord. It's like, well, maybe, I think so. I don't know. Like, we're going to keep going. Like, seems like it. He didn't stop me so far. So, like, I'm going to keep going. But I don't know. The only thing that we, we, we understood that we knew was that the Lord was like, hey, like, let's, let's go play in a church in Berkeley. We didn't know if it was going to be big or successful or people were going to like it or people were going to just, like, hate us the entire time. Or like, but I, wasn't, I didn't care about that. Because the Lord didn't say, like, here's, like, the things I need you to do. If the Lord said, I need you to do these things, then I would have been focused on those things. But like Abram, you just said, go. You just figure it out day by day. Which is extremely helpful for our church because, like, I never have to stress out about, like, what if our church closes down? It's like, well, then the Lord closed it down. Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I didn't close it down. Like, if the Lord closed it down, like, he closed it down. If he's, if he's done, if everyone's like, hey, like, I'm finished my work here, great. Praise the Lord. Where else is he moving? What else is he going to do? Where else is he going to be a part of? It's important to understand that because in the midst of something like that happening, it might be like, well, let's look at all the good things that happened as a result. Like, maybe there's good things. Yeah, I'm sure there are plenty of good things. But we understand, regardless of anything that happens, the Lord is sovereign over all things. He's going to do what he's going to do. And I want to find out what he's doing, and I want to go with him and join him in everything that he's doing. So let's come up with some crazy ideas and bet on the Lord. Perhaps, perhaps the Lord may be at work. Perhaps the Lord might want to do something. It's all the more fun when it like doesn't logically make sense. It's just like super fun. Because then when it works, you're like, oh, okay, I see what's up. If it doesn't work, you're like, okay, yeah, that definitely wasn't it. But we trust in his faithfulness. We're banking on his character. We're banking on who he is, not on who we are, what we want our desires to be regarding the things that we want to see happen. We're banking on his faithfulness, his character. And so we work from that position of God's, uh, of God's people. We, have, we work from the position of the truth that is rooted in in our trust in God's faithfulness. And so as you move throughout your life, I would challenge you, I would ask you to consider moving through your day with that question in mind, with that speculation in mind. Perhaps the Lord may do something if I go here or do this or say this. Would the Lord want to work? Maybe he wouldn't want to work, maybe he would. But entertain the question. Ask those things, not just randomly off of what you see, but out of what God's character is, what he desires. Now, you can be successful when you know what it is, when you know him. You can't ask this question if you don't know him. You don't know what questions to ask, or you don't know how to operate out of this if you don't have that intimacy with him. And so you have to know that God loves and cares for those people around us. You have to know that God cares that more people know him. He wants more people to meet Jesus like everybody. And so if you know that, if it's internalized, if you understand that, then you can be like, well, maybe the Lord wants to do this. If you know about God's heart and what he desires to do and see accomplished in this world, then we are likely to come up with ideas for him to, uh, for us to say, maybe the Lord wants to work in this direction. Maybe he wants to work in that direction. Let's see.
Find your identity in him and then just make some crazy decisions. See what he does. Could be awesome. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your goodness, your faithfulness, your kindness to us. We ask that you would you would strengthen our faith. Our faith in your faithfulness, our trust in your faithfulness. Our faith can be strong because you are strong, not because we are great at willing that we trust you. But Lord, you will take that little bit of trust, a little bit of faith that we have in your strength, and you will use it for your glory. And so, Lord, we ask that you would work in our lives as we find our identity in you, that you would work all things together for our good and for your glory. Lord, we're so thankful that nothing can separate us from your love and that our identity in you is sure, it is strong, it is faithful, it is true. And so, Lord, we, we trust you. If you are for us, who can be against us? And so, Lord, we want to be with you. We want to know you. We want to enjoy you. And so help us to grow in faith. We love you. Amen.